Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester once again with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week. You guys are fantastic. And I'm so grateful for all your support. I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, Mountain West Spine and Orthopedics, my friend Drew Peterson, and a new one that I just uh, uh, you know joined on was Thread Wallets. Uh, they make an incredible product and uh, Mackenzie and Colby, they're amazing people. So grateful for all their support and uh, thankful for all of you as well, like I said. And uh, we've had some amazing guests on and with some amazing topics. And today's going to be no different. Today, we are joined by the author of Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, Andrew Pierce. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so good to have you. Um, you're in recovery yourself, uh, which we'll, we'll get into, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is uh, congratulations on your success there. And uh, again, you're doing a lot of good in that community. Um, you're a master's level certified addiction professional. Uh, you're a graduate of the Hazleton Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. I heard that's a really difficult school. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's probably the most rigorous program in the world right now. Wow. Well, you know, um, Andrew definitely understands the addictive mind. Uh, his journey has taken him from owning a multi-million dollar corporate retirement plan consulting firm to campaigning, or excuse me, to, to camping with power and abandoned houses to becoming one of the most respected, innovative, knowledgeable addiction therapists in the Southwest, in Southwest Florida. Uh, he has a private practice in Naples and uh, he's just an amazing person who's doing great things. And we are in for a treat today. So uh, Andrew, why don't we just start, you know, letting our listeners know kind of a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. I, I know that as an infant, you were adopted and maybe just get into that a little bit for us. Sure. Um, I, well, I grew up in central Wisconsin, um, a small town called Wisconsin Rapids. And mm-hmm. um, my folks uh, were, my dad was an attorney in town and uh, it was a paper town on the Wisconsin River. And my dad was an attorney and my mom uh, was an English major. And so between the two of them, you know, I, I got my grammar down and probably uh, made it possible for me to leverage those skills writing as I got older. Right on. So um, how were you as a child? Like, uh, what was your, what were you into? What maybe some of the things that you kind of challenge were challenging you at the time? Yeah. Well, you know, um, as a, kid and and i think this sort of ties into the addiction thing most people with addiction um, if you go far back enough uh, you look at family of origin type dynamics and they can tend to set us up for addiction um you know as a kid i i I don't think the adoption thing was i was even conscious of that you know it just yeah you know you're a kid right but i did have add and so I was, you know, running all over the place at all times. And uh, my folks' mantra, which I'm sure they inherited from their folks, was that children are to be seen and not heard. <laughs> right. And so if you have this fairly narrow range of acceptable behavior uh, from your folks, and then all your behaviors are falling outside of that uh, narrow range, you can imagine the kind of feedback you generally get over the years to the extent that that, you know, first hit a pot or first drink at age 13 or so the tremendous relief, you know, that we are, because, yeah. you know, we have no basis of comparison, no baseline stress level. But uh, I suspect that uh, 
you know, the feedback that I got as a result of that, the inattentiveness uh, in school, yeah. having to go take a pill at lunchtime to be excused, all those things yeah. probably contributed to a sense of maybe a social alienation. Um, so I had a, like a couple of friends, you know, very few. I was in Cub Scouts, uh, but even then, uh, yeah. you know, they, I was sort of the, the odd duck. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I bet that was going to be my next question. Like, how how did it affect you with being with friends and stuff? And I'm sure that was tough. Did you find yourself like, you know, feeling down and depressed or feeling different? And, in you know, when you realized that maybe your ADD was getting in the way of some of this stuff? Well, that's the thing. I was totally oblivious. I mean, I had no self-awareness really whatsoever. And so for me, I was just very isolated. Um, you know, I have an older brother, three years older, and a younger sister, three years younger. Um, so I'd pick on the younger sister, and then my brother would pick on me. And uh, yeah. so it, it was uh, <laughs> felt victimized, even though I wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, the yeah, I think there was just a lot of isolation. The, the friends that I did have were also kind of folks that were probably more ostr- not ostracized, but uh, excluded from general cliques. Um, and then of course, when I did start, uh, you know, drinking and smoking pot, um, I was, I kind of fit in, if you will, with the stoners Yeah. and, uh, th- that was my click. Yeah. How old were you? Folks weren't real happy about that. It was 13, 14, ninth grade. Okay. Eighth, yeah. Eighth or ninth grade. I started, um, and I basically used substances from age 13 to 17, at mm. which point, I got into some legal trouble and the judge said, well, you can go to prison for three and a half years or you can uh, go to treatment. And I thought for a minute and seemed like treatment would be an easier choice, an easier, softer way. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so I did. I went to actually Hazelden, uh, uh, Plymouth, the the adolescent unit, I was 17. And I actually got kicked out of there for uh, conspiring to to bring pot across the border from Mexico to Brownsville, Texas. And so <laughs> um, my folks uh, and the case managers there, thankfully, found a bed for me in Minneapolis at, I guess you could call it a lockup unit. Okay. Um, you know, and I finished, went through that treatment program uh, and it made an impact. And rather than letting me go home, I, um, I, I went to a sober living residence for six months, which I didn't want to do, but it turned out to be the best thing because, um, you know, and I know now that mm-hmm. relationships, healthy relationships uh, are really the key to, to long-term recovery right? because it's only within the context of healthy relationships that love resides and yeah, right. addiction, addiction short circuits, everything that, enables people to have healthy relationships you know our ability to guarantee our behavior consistency authenticity trustworthiness transparency all the things that make a person safe to love which is what in my book i I describe as what the opposite of addiction is the ability to be a safe to love person Mm. um you know that those are all those things enable a person to have a healthy relationship yeah, which is where love resides. And the love, of course, displaces where the addiction would normally have an opportunity to get a toehold on us. Right. And so, uh, you know, that's 
that's how I view things anyway. Gotcha. Well, let's jump right into you've written this book, uh, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism and Recovery. And then the subtitle is Putting the Universe to Work for You. Let's talk about why, what, what is the title? Why did you come up with the title? And then tell us why you decided to write this book and what are you seeing, you know, with this spiritual skepticism in recovery? Mm-hmm. Well, since I do have ADD, I'll probably forget the, the, the last that barrage of questions. Let's see. Uh, resolving spiritual skepticism. Why, why did I call it that? Well, it's not, first of all, it's not the book that my publisher really wanted me to, to write because um, it's, it's got a limited scope of, uh, in a sense of, uh, um, you know, the, the, they wanted me to write a book that would have maybe appealed to a wider audience, but I'm very passionate about this specific topic, right? People in recovery that have a problem with spirituality because I am or was one of them. I mean, I really wrote the book. It's it's almost an autobiography in the sense that it discusses my particular journey in piecing together, weaving together the uh, the this uh, uh, model from all sorts of separate sources that basically were saying variations on the same themes. Um, and so, but, uh, you know, I, I struggled with the sense of spirituality and whether you're in a 12 step program or any other program, I know that one of the things intuitively when I would go to 12 step meetings was that it seemed as though people that had a sense of spirituality, regardless of what brand it was, mm-hmm. certainly had a, a, a competitive advantage in terms of getting the content of the, the that particular program. Yeah. And the depth, the depth of their recovery and their resilience was much greater than those of us who really had a hard time with spirituality for any number of valid reasons, you know, shame, lack of yeah. trust in a higher power all the things that I talk about in the book that are justifiable barriers to a person adopting a spiritual perspective, but the clinical benefits are, 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 are significant for adopting a spiritual perspective. So, you know, that's why the book, the book, I wrote the book because I suffered from that problem and I finally found a way to, um, you know, to get around it, to, to, to work around my own spiritual skepticism. Okay. Can you describe that? Like what, what was working for you? What did you find and discover for yourself in that, uh, at that time in your life? Okay. Well, really this was after grad school because I, I was working with a lot of, uh, uh, clients that, that had the same, uh, types of issues. And so, in the process, uh, you know, when I realized that, I mean, just from normal experience, first of all, um, but from, I, I was listening to a lot of my clients' reasons why they did were unable to, um, you know, adopt a spiritual perspective. And for example, um, one of them would have been, a shame okay so shame is one of the reasons uh why people have difficulty you know they they might go to when we're not able to guarantee our behavior um we have a very difficult time 
uh, you know, the kind of feedback that we get are, uh, as a result is, is shameful. You know, people say, well, what the heck's the matter with you? Right. What's wrong with you? Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, the reasons why I certainly had trouble with it. I didn't believe that I deserved yeah. any sort of relationship with a higher power, right? Um, a lot of times, uh, going back to, uh, again, family of origin type stuff, the kind of feedback that we got as, as kids, um, you know, played an Im impact. We had to repress our true self in favor of attachment. That's good Gabor Mate type stuff. He talks about yeah. childhood uh, attachment versus authenticity. And we, uh, you know, the shame isn't just from other people, but it's from ourselves. Um, we, we hate ourselves. It's low self-esteem, right? We hold ourselves in low, low regard so that even, you know, we don't believe that we are lovable. Yeah. I did not believe that I was lovable, which is a strange concept if you've never been there or yeah. at least have the contrast, right? Yeah. Um, I remember talking to somebody that I was uh, uh, dating during the time that I was in addiction. Um, and after I got out of addiction, uh, she, I was visiting and, and, um, you know, I, I wasn't living where she was. And when I, when I went back home, um, one of the reasons that she said that she uh, wasn't, you know, didn't really want to be and develop a relationship was because it hurt so much when I, I, I would leave, you know, and uh, I didn't understand. I didn't realize it, it was only then that I was able to realize that I did, even though I'd felt unlovable, other people yeah. didn't necessarily see that my self-perception was different. So um, resolving the spiritual skepticism in recovery was really important for me um, because, you know, it's so many people struggle with this problem, you know, because of shame again, yeah. uh, their false self ego, uh, they don't want to be like their parents. And if their parents were devout in some sort of, um, you know, spiritual sense with, with a religion, maybe there's some judgment involved. And of course, when we can't guarantee our behavior because of our addictions, and we're used to being judged by regular people, we probably have this idea that, you know, our higher power is going to judge us too. Yeah. So th there are just so many reasons. And so what, what I ended up doing was I, I in, in college and university of Utah, actually, I was a, a philosophy major and I took a couple of classes back then. One was philosophy of mind. The other one was philosophy of science. Um, and, um, you know, physics was very interesting uh, to me also, just my dad was into science and mm. uh, there were some things in quantum physics that um, there was sort of an aha moment where, where we learn about things like the, something called the double slit um, uh, experiment. Yeah, I got it. Where, I gotta where consciousness has to do with the, the outcome. Yeah, I got to say right. that that sorry to cut you off, but that experiment is amazing, by the way. And if anyone's mm -hmm. never looked that up and watched it and what that really is, it's called the double slit experiment. And it's it, it's mind blowing. And 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 I'm excited to talk about this because when I saw this, maybe help us understand what is the quantum field theory and how you incorporate that into to to all of this. 
Right. Well, quantum field theory was actually sort of a, an answer. It provided a solution to mm. the double slit thought, ex, uh, the double slit experiment, uh, because essentially, okay, with the double slit experiment, just the gist of it was that they shoot an electron through two little slits. There's a screen on the other side. And uh, it seems that uh, when nobody is looking, the, the, the electron or photon could have gone through either slit. And uh, what appears on the screen is something called a, an interference pattern. It looks a little bit like a zebra, uh, but it's basically a probability bell curve where most of the intensity or the most of the protons, photons hit the screen in the middle and it works outward almost like a, yeah. a bell uh, a bell thing okay so if you if you're if there's one electron or photon leaving the gun and it's hitting in one spot the only way it's going to make a, an interference pattern is if it's actually it, it acts like energy as waves and so what the physicists did was they said okay we don't know which slit it went through but it's acting like it went through both. Otherwise, it wouldn't make an interference pattern. So let's put a, a, a little observation device at the slits. Yeah. And then we'll know what slit it went through. So when they did that, strangely enough, the interference pattern would disappear and there would the, the photon would simply go through line of sight. Uh, and there would be two... Two, two bars on the screen in the back, right? From the line of sight, from the end of the photon gun through the slits, you could see right straight through, there were two bars, okay? Yeah. So if they, if they looked away and they didn't have knowledge of the system, it would be in the form of energy when they had conscious awareness or knowledge of the system, uh, the, the photon, the, the photon would uh, revert to purely particles all the way through. By the way, um, just as a side note, which ties into the concept of time, is that yeah. clearly wherever you put the uh, apparatus, the, the observation device, it basically backloads history, you know, in time to before it was a it, It's always wave until where it, it's observed. Wow. So now how does this tie into quantum field, the quantum field theory? Okay, so this, this stumped physicists for a long time. How could our knowledge, um, you know, affect the outcome, have a material impact on, on, on the nature of that reality? Well, it turns out, and this was just figured out probably in the last, uh, I think 2012 was when they put in the last piece of this puzzle at the CERN um, super collider, when they discovered or came up with evidence of what's called the Higgs field. And uh, that's gonna become important in a second. Okay. But, but the underlying um, substrate of the universe, that's where this question came from, is, is what is the most fundamental aspect of the universe? We were all taught in school uh, that it was, you know, electrons and protons and neutrons, right? Subatomic particles. And then as we got a little close, you know, more recently, we realized that the protons and neutrons were simply made up of quarks, up quarks and down quarks. So two types of things. And the physicists kept asking, well, where do those come from? Right. Yeah. And that's where the, that's where the Higgs field comes in. Right. Because 
what happens is um, the underlying substrate of the entire universe is actually completely just con these continuous fields. There's 17 of them, okay? But there are only three of them from which all of these quarks and electrons are derivative. Mm. So when these fields are energized in one specific area to a very specific amount, an integer amount, um, a, it, that field interacts with the Higgs field, converting that energy to mass, creating a subatomic particle. So, um, you know, there are like 12, what are called scalar fields, which make different particles, but only three of which are what constitute everything you and I see, including ourselves, everything. There's nothing that we can see that isn't simply derivative of those three fields, the up quark, right. down quark, right. and the electric quark field, okay? Um, the other five fields are, are called vector fields. They're responsible for how the particles, once they become particles, behave. So it keeps them together. You know, the strong force field, the weak force field makes so that the particles that do appear don't just fly off willy-nilly. And right. so, so anyway, um, you know, and by the way, that's one of the arguments in favor of some sort of divine intelligence, right? That there was some author that came up with this algorithm that made it so that everything works so perfectly, right? Now, Getting back to our double slit experiment, they thought, well, how can our conscious awareness of the system affect the outcome? What they failed to realize is that with quantum field theory, we are literally part of the same system. And so our consciousness is tied into the system. It, it, it affects it. So we're, we're the mistake they were making was believing that we are, in fact, different from the you know, late the photon double slit screen system, our consciousness is a, a field. It's it's part basically involved. It's it interacts with those other fields, and so by our conscious observation um, and our consciousness observing the system we literally affect the outcome. So we are part and parcel of the exact same system. We're not separate from it. So we can't possibly be objective. Right. We're, we are in it, right? And these fields are continuous throughout the entire universe. So you're sitting there in Utah, I'm sitting here in Florida, but you and I are both literally derivative of the exact same fields simultaneously. We're almost like nodes. Yeah. I guess, yeah. uh, in the same field. We are connected, quite literally. And so um, that's where the quantum field stuff comes in handy. And if you add some information uh, theory in there, the idea that really the fields are infused with information and, and that it kind of probably had to come from somewhere, that's the small leap of faith that's required is the logical leap that this maybe didn't just accidentally show up the way it is yeah you, you can plug in any higher power you want and it still works so yeah. the point is to be able to get a toehold on spirituality and the idea that consciousness um that we you know are able to uh affect you know affect reality that's the implication of this whole thing right yeah um the the implication is that we can we're, we can take responsibility for our own reality. And so um, the clinical applications 
there, there, you know, there's another aspect of that, by the way, it's called the superposition of all possible realities. In mm -hmm. other words, with, with quantum mechanics, since all possibilities exist simultaneously at the same time, because they're not coalesced into material reality until affected by, um, you know, by a consciousness, right? Um, that should be that that generates hope. That's hope for people who, in our, you know, sorry, based on our past, um, we we have this false belief in recovery that our past somehow has something to do with our future. When literally, we are the only thing that keeps you and me the same person that we were two seconds ago or five days ago is the memory of who we think we are supposed to be, right? Yeah. And so we can so we can leverage this. Uh, you know, very real nature of quantum mechanics, uh, if we understand it and internalize it sufficiently to get rid of things like hopelessness that comes that's inherent to addiction, right? Yeah. Um, uh, when you understand that our conscious, what we think about has a lot to do with our reality, uh, it makes sense to get rid of, clinically speaking, a lot of the cognitive distortions, the thinking errors that we have that give yeah. us a crap attitude toward the world. Yeah. Because everything that we have ever accomplished started out as a thought, right? Yeah. And so here we are. We've coalesced it into reality. Um, so the idea that past performance does not guarantee future results Um you know, we can advocate in favor of the elimination of cognitive distortions, you know, black and white thinking, uh, control fallacy, all those things that inform un unforced errors that cause yeah. us to, uh, you know, have right. just be miserable. Um, it, it, we can use mindfulness and guided meditations to envision some entangled version of ourselves uh, in all of the possible realities that exist uh, in sort of occupy that material version of ourselves and how that person would think I do something called the magic wand thought experiment where we actually envision what heaven on earth would be like right you know where we're fully authentic we're not yeah. afraid to be our true self and a byproduct of which by the way is that everybody who's in our life loves us for who we are because we're not going to be everyone's flavor of the day so anyone that's left is going to be loving us for who we are people in addiction have such a hard time asserting their true selves, right? So yeah. part of this book is about recovering our authenticity and then asserting it like ACA type stuff, mm -hmm. adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's non-judgmental. Science is non-judgmental. Everything is proven. Every experiment ever done to confirm or disconfirm quantum mechanics and quantum field theory has validated its, its, it, that its veracity. Um, this mitigates victimhood mentality because we can't blame our circumstances on other factors because we're literally creating our reality as we go along. Um, it promotes spirituality, right? Because you know, we can, it doesn't take a lot to make that logical step that maybe the, um, you know, that again, this, even if you go back to the big bang, right? So, you know, the information that's woven into the fields that make our, this all possible, you know, it's, it's not too much of a stretch to insert whatever higher power you want there. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah, there's, and of course it mitigates loneliness and feelings of isolation, right? The fact that you and I are connected yeah. 
even though we're thousands of miles apart. Yeah. Um, that's that's you know, loneliness and boredom, right? Those are the top two culprits for relapse. So there are a lot of problems that are solved by adopting this this angle, this approach to uh, spirituality. Wow. Very well said and very fascinating stuff. And um, appreciate you sharing that and saying it so well. You know, you've already touched on them a little bit already. You know, you talk about the three most common challenging barriers to addiction recovery. You know, you talked about spiritual contempt, fear of authenticity, and lack of belief in the ability to change. Um, what? Let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that the last one, uh, the lack of belief in our ability to change. I hear that a lot with my clients, like, you know what, I've been stuck in this uh, rehab, you know, relapse, rehab, relapse, jail, re you know, it's just this vicious cycle. And they do, they get this belief that I, I'm never going to change. And so maybe just touch base a little bit on that, Andrew. I know there's a lot there, but if you could just yeah. touch base on that one for us, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, you know, I guess, first of all, just from the science perspective, right, there's that superposition of all possible realities. And so, it, you know, if, if the, there's sort of the fuzzy nature of the present, right? And so if we understand that our past literally, quite literally has nothing to do with our future. Mm -hmm. And the only thing keeping us from fundamental change is are these unquestioned beliefs, right? About who we think we are and who we're supposed to be, you know? And when we go through the authentic, what I call the authentication process, that's which we recover our true self, yeah. we're no longer a moving target. And so we, um, you know, our, just that change in itself is, is a fundamental change. We're never going to make long-term changes as the same person that we were when we were engaging in those behaviors. We literally have to become somebody else. And that means preferably our original true self, yeah. our inner child. Um, and so when you understand that the way that consciousness works I like to think there's a benevolent higher power out there. And when our heads and hearts are aligned behind what we truly want in life, what we truly want our life to be like without taking into account what everybody thinks we should or shouldn't be doing, right. including spouses, family members, that's a form of prayer. The energy that we put out is like 30 to 40,000 times more than if we're not congruent. So we have to do these meditations you know, when we get into a meditative state about what we'd like our life to be like and occupy that right. um, place, um, that's a form of prayer, right? And so the universe, right. tend, whatever you want to call it, tends to conspire in our favor. And, and, and we're sort of like switching channels into that reality because they all exist simultaneously. There's not one that doesn't exist. Um, so our, when we understand the nature of reality and how it works, that in itself ought to be beneficial in helping us to unlearn old beliefs that we can't fundamentally change. Um, it, it just is illogical, really, to yeah. think that we could, can't change. It's our memories that we have, to, we have to debunk the false beliefs that our past has anything to do with our future. Wow. Very well said. Thank you so much. So sure. um, not only, you know, you're an author, you, you know, you do counseling and coaching and what, what else are you involved in that's kind of helps you, you know, do you, 
Are you doing any other big projects that are on the way that you could maybe let us know what's, you know, what's in the future for you? Well, um, I'm first, I'm about 60% of the way through with the study guide for, for the book uh, oh, right I've written the, a chapter by chapter study guide because it's, it's fairly short. It's 260 pages, but there's, there's, there's no, uh, there's no fat, you know? And so every sentence is like, Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. And, but then I go back, you know, it's like, we'll have a session. It's like, so, uh, you know, what stuck out to you? And it's like, there's so much stuff. It's like, they, they, they don't even know where to start. Um, and so I created a study guide so people can go chapter by chapter and it asks questions so people can personalize the material to their experience. And so I think that'll be beneficial for clinicians to work, to utilize this, uh, clinical model with their, their, their clients. And, um, yeah, there's also 26 hours, by the way, it weaves together 26 hours of video content. That's, uh, if you look right before the table of contents, there's a link to the, my media vault and, uh, andrewgpierce.com forward slash book links and book dash links. And, um, you know, there's Ted talks, there's documentaries, um, right because pe- people a lot smarter and better at presenting material than <laughs> I am, uh, you know, uh, talk about it. And so the book goes along and you'll see something to re- refer to the video. And then the, the book picks up then at the end of the video and we process it. So it makes sense. So that's why it's such a short book, really, because the videos. Um, gotcha. And of course, I forgot the question. No, you answered it perfectly. <laughs> okay, good. That was the question. No, very, very well said. Um so you do, you also do lectures. Do you have any lectures that are coming up soon? Uh, yeah. Okay. That was the question. Yeah. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm going around because this is the thing that's so really frustrating and uh, I'll try not to swear, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, AA, I mean, this is like the, the demographic is people in maybe a 12 step program that have trouble with spirituality. Right. Right. AA will not let me talk about it anywhere um, because I wrote the book and I might actually benefit financially from it. They yeah. say it's about it's about attraction, not promotion, right? Hmm. <laughs> and so, so, so the very same people who would benefit most from it, it's, it's like the, uh, you know, the, the guardians of information. They just want the same dogma, I guess, to be perpetuated and, and screw those people that don't get the, the spiritual part. So that really pisses me off. Pardon my French. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm going into treatment centers, get doing uh, educational symposiums for the, the clinicians. Uh, I'm also going to, uh, you know, invited to speak to the patient populations to give them a, a sense of what's going on. Um, and uh, I'm also basically uh, giving, uh, you know, piles of, of books to libraries at treatment centers and stuff. So it becomes more of a word of mouth thing. People might say it sure. and be like, wow, this is awesome. And everybody that's actually read it is blown away by the material. It's got all five star reviews on Amazon. I get, uh, you know, emails and letters all the time from people that just are so grateful that I was yeah. able to help get, get, give them a toehold on spirituality so that they can fully engage in the 12 promises, you know, um, yeah. which half of which involves spiritual stuff. For sure. So yeah, yeah I'm yeah. doing, and, and workshops, I'm doing workshops, maybe, 
once every couple months. Um, and I'm what I'm doing, I've been doing them here in Naples, but my plan is to go around the country to various uh, treatment centers and or uh, mental health places where they deal with a lot of folks in addiction. And um, it's like a three day workshop where it's intensive and it focuses on the material and people can then, um, you know, uh, their, their workbooks and we process it all in a group setting. Uh, it's very intensive and uh, it was a four day workshop, but people have trouble getting away for four days. So I was yeah. able to condense it to three days and I charge about a thousand bucks ahead for that, which is actually pretty reasonable. Yeah. Um, and uh, the way that I'm working that out is I'm, I'm uh, splitting the revenue with the, the organizations that sponsor it. So I don't have to worry about getting a hotel and all that other garbage. Right. Um, you know, the local people have their own clientele kind of built in. They can tell who might benefit by this and who might not. Oh, awesome. Are, is any of that available online for, for them, someone to watch your workshops or your lectures? Um, I'm, I'm probably going to have a guy come down from St. Louis and videotape uh, some of that stuff. Um, I'm going to be starting a YouTube channel where I just sort of vamp on some of the concepts. Okay. Um, but uh, it's early in the process. I've been so overwhelmed with my regular clinical yeah. practice yeah. and then working on everything else. My wife's going to kill me if I take on another project. <laughs> I, um, I understand that one. <laughs> yeah. No, I get but it. you know, I, I want to, I wish I could do it all because it's such great material. I mean, this is the only field and this isn't new, by the way, uh, there's yeah. a, a, you know, there's a, the law of attraction type stuff, right. Um, you know, uh, Joe Dispenza is where I got the idea from. I read a book of his called breaking the habit of being yourself when I was doing a sober uh, companion gig up in Tennessee yeah. for three months. And that's where I started this. I was like, wow, this is awesome. It's a field based change model. But he doesn't explain the science behind it. And I'm one of those guys that's so skeptical that if I don't understand it, it's just a bunch yeah. of snake oil yeah. and some guy trying to enrich himself. So I really I spent two years in the rabbit hole extracting all of the best material and including it in, you know, in the order that the book is on, in my media vault and putting this together. I said, well, this is great. Why hasn't somebody applied it to addiction? Because there's that extra layer of pathology, you know, the shame, the learned helplessness, all that stuff. Um, and so I'm the first person, I guess, that's put this material together and applied it to an addiction context. And I'm really trying to get it to be basically another viable clinical model, because when I, with my clients and the workshop attendees, we get traction on it and it changes their life. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. It's cheating. Actually, it, it, sh it shouldn't be allowed uh, <laughs> be, because we're taking advantage of a aspect of reality. That's not leveraged by everybody. Right. Wow. Love it though. I love that you're going to do that. I think it's great. If there's someone listening to you right now, Andrew, who's struggling, they're in a dark place, they're stuck in addiction. Um, what advice could you give that one person who's listening to your voice right now? Mm. I would say, don't listen to yourself <laughs> because you're going to lie. And, and uh, an addict in, in isolation is in terrible company. You know, listen to the people who intuitively, you know, love you and, and, uh, and who, because intuitively, you know that you're you're not living up to your true potential. Yeah. Um, believe people when they tell you that you're so much more 
That's yeah. what I would say. Um, it's I, I I watched the the latest Matrix show, um, and Keanu Reeves said something interesting because uh, it's kind of based on this type of concept. He said, yeah. "This is a doc. This isn't a movie. It's a documentary." And it is, you know, it's only to the extent that we believe in ourselves that we actually apply our, our gifts. If we don't, you know, if we're conditioned by family of origin and our addictions that we can't follow through and do stuff, we can't guarantee our behavior that, that we suck, even though we don't suck, we're not going to try it. That, that's why I use the example of the elephant at the circus, the giant elephant in front of the, uh, yeah, the big the big top munching hay between sets, you know, he's got a rope uh, tied to his back leg and a stake stuck in the ground. Right. And anybody yeah. would look at that picture and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. He could easily run off into the into the tent or the parking lot and on a rampage. But what yeah. most people don't realize is that that elephant's been there since it was a baby elephant. Uh, were, and, and, and the stake and the, the little rope worked, you know, and so eventually the, it quit trying and. And that's what addiction and family of origin stuff is like. We forget it, it, it undermines our, our ability to even dream. Um, that's when I, when I do the magic wand thought experiment where I give people a magic wand and I say, okay, I want you to come back with an essay. It's also on my website, andrewgpierce.com forward slash magic wand. It's got all the questions, but um, you know, here's a magic wand. Ma describe in rich detail what your life would be like if you, Time and money is no object. You could have anything you want. You could, you know, you could look, it, it, it was perfect. Life is heaven on earth. What would that look like? And it's amazing how many people come back the next week with this pathetic two paragraph, you know, thing. And <laughs> yeah. they'll, they'll say things like, well, I wanted to be realistic, right? Um, or they didn't even understand the purpose of it. And, and just the, just, giving them that assignment reveals a lot about the underlying pathology, you know, because they literally cannot construct an image of what being happy and yeah, would look like. They, sure. they can't, they can't imagine it. And the average person can. And so, you know, that's, that's what learned helplessness is. We can't even piece yeah. together an image of what that would look like. It's very sad. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, uh, if again, you've mentioned it a few times, but if someone wants to reach out to you, if they want to buy your book, if they want to learn more about your lectures, the magic wand experiment, what is the best place? Is it, is it just, just your uh, website? Yeah, it's just my website, andrewgpierce.com. Um, okay. And that's got my, the contact information is my cell number. It's right here. You know, it will go right <laughs> to me. Right on. If I don't, if I don't answer, it's because I'm doing a podcast or I'm in a session <laughs> yeah. or uh, yeah. otherwise indisposed. But, um, you know, that's the way the best way to reach me. Uh, you can punch in the keywords resolving spiritual skepticism on Amazon and you'll see some amazing reviews um, and it's you, you'll get it faster. Otherwise, the ones that are ordered from my website, I fulfill those and I can sign them. I mean, I don't know why people want an autograph, but whatever, if they do, I, they might. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah. do that. Yeah. But yeah, that's the best way to reach me. It's got my phone number on the uh, website and um, I work with people all over the world. You know, I don't have to, you don't have to be yeah. in Florida or in Naples to work with okay. me I do it with zoom nowadays. That's been pretty normalized for sure. And um, yeah. And if people want me to do a workshop near them, they can reach out to me and I'll try and coordinate with their mental health provider and see if we can get enough people to show up to make it worthwhile. 
Oh, love it. Love it. Well, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on my show today. It means a lot to me. And I know it means a lot to our listeners. Um, you have a, a different perspective of things, which I think is refreshing. Um, and I invite everyone who's listening to go get your book, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism and Recovery, and go check it out. Go check out his website, andrewgpierce.com. And it's a beautiful website. It's very easy to navigate. And uh, Andrew, you really are just doing a lot of great in this world. And uh, I thank you for your time today. Well, thanks a lot, Todd. I'm happy to uh, be a blessing any way that I can. Awesome. Well, folks, thank you for tuning in. Um, like I said, today was going to be great. Andrew Pierce, guys, thank you for tuning in. Please share this with your family and friends. Share this episode. Uh, let's get the word out. Let's get uh, people uh, more involved in this and uh, what he's doing. Again, thanks to my sponsors. Uh, you guys are amazing. I love you guys. And until next time, thanks again, Andrew. Have a good one.